Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell, lead pastor at James River Church. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. Today, I want to talk to you from a very unique passage. The title of the message is Grace in a Messed Up Place. Grace in a Messed Up Place. And I'd like us to look at Genesis chapter 16. What we're going to do is I'm going to read a few verses from the text, make a few introductory comments, then we're going to look at the text. It has a lot to say to us today uh, in terms of God's desire for us to just trust him, his care for us when we can't see what he's doing, and his love for us to those especially today who maybe feel disenfranchised, you feel you're all alone, you feel nobody sees you, there is a God who certainly sees you. Let's read it. Genesis 16, verse 1. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife. So this is Abraham and Sarah. God is going to change their names, and as he changes their names, with the change of name is going to be an empowerment in their bodies physically to fulfill what their new name means. It's very similar to what we've talked about in terms of the fact that whenever God speaks to us, inherent in his words to us is the power to fulfill what he said. How powerful is the word of God? He spoke the worlds into existence. So if God says something, there's power in what he says. If God gives somebody a new name, he gave Peter a a new name. He said, you're Simon. I'm going to call you Rocky. I'm going to call you Peter. Peter means rock. So he gives him a name that enables Peter to become what Jesus sees in him. Here it's God changing a name to empower them to fulfill God's purpose in their life, physically and spiritually. Their names, Sarai. Sarai means my princess. Abram means father of Aram or exalted father. There's a bit of debate about what it means, but you can go with either one of those. God is going to change Sarah's name to the princess or mother of nations and Abram's name to Abraham, the father of nations. But that hasn't happened yet. I simply want to explain why the difference, because we always talk about Abraham and Sarah, but originally they were Sarai and Abram. Let's go back to Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you're responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. 
It's a very, very interesting story. It's a harsh story. It's a brutal story. And honestly, there are some people who look at this story and they say, this story is a perfect example of why I cannot accept the Bible. Because it condones slavery. It has brutality. It demeans women. All of which causes some people to say, I struggle with the Word of God. Now, you may not, you may not resonate. You're like, oh, I don't know why somebody would say that. And really, honestly, it's somewhat of a generational thing. So if you're my age or older, probably if you're, if you're 50 or older, you don't think in those terms as much. You take it more at face value. If you're younger, especially if you're a millennial or you're in Generation Z, you're saying, that's exactly what my friends say, and I don't know how to answer them, or it's what I have thought. So before we jump into the story, I want to just briefly address that and help you think it through. I want you to think deeply for just a moment and ask yourself, why does that story offend you? If the story offends you, may I suggest it's, become, it's because you've come to the Bible with a misunderstanding regarding what the Bible's about. Most people who haven't read the Bible assume this. They assume that the Bible is primarily a book of spiritual virtues, kind of stories with a moral. And the stories show us how to live. And if you live like the characters in the Bible, God will bless you. But this text shows us that the Bible is not primarily a book of virtues. It's not the story of holier-than-thou people or morally superior people. It's a book that shows God's grace in the lives of people who do not deserve it and maybe aren't even looking for it. Let me put it to you this way. The Bible isn't about us and what we should be doing. It's about God and what he has done and desires to do in the lives of people. It's about a God of grace who reaches down into the lives of people who have made terrible decisions at times either because they didn't know God or because they had forgotten about him. And God reaches down and he redeems those situations, which is the best of news. That's the gospel. God reaching down and helping us. God reaching down and doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Now, as we come to Genesis 16, God has appeared to Abram several times. In fact, we're going to bring up a map here just so you kind of, if you've never heard this story, I want to kind of catch you up to speed. So Abram's born in a city called Ur. It's in the Fertile Crescent, the, the area of Mesopotamia. This is the cradle of civilization. Abraham is born there around 2000 BC. And while he is there, what happens when he's 65 years old, Stephen tells us in Acts chapter 7 and verses 2 through 3, that the God of glory appeared to Abraham. So here he is. He's worshiping. Isaiah says Abraham worshiped, worshiped pagan gods beyond the river. So here he is. He is a pagan, and God appears to him, and God says to him, I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your people. I want you to leave your country, and I want you to go to the land I will show you. So Abram takes his father 
and he takes his nephew Lot, and they go up here to Haran. So he goes up along the Euphrates River. He comes to a place called Haran, and while he's there, he spends 10 years there. What's interesting is, during that 10 years, there's no new commands from God. All of that to say this, that I believe there are people here today, God has spoken to you, God has given you a sense of what his will is for your life, and you've gone halfway, but you just haven't gone the whole way. And God's will hasn't changed, and you're not going to see God work in your life until you keep doing what he originally told you to do. So in Haran, God appears to him again and says, go to the land, I'll show you. His father's died, he's now 75 years old, and he goes down into the land of Israel, and as he's there, God appears to him and says, to you and your descendants, I'm going to give this land. There's several times that he has encounters with the living God. During part of the time, there's a famine, he goes over to Egypt, then comes back in and lives right around the area of Hebron, and when we come to Genesis 16, he's now 85 years old. So he's had these repeated promises that he's going to have descendants, but 10 years have passed, he's 85 years old, Sarai is 75 years old, and so far, nothing has happened. As we look at it, we're going to see three people. We're going to see Sarai, we're going to see Abram, and we're going to see Hagar, and we're going to watch a gracious God work in the lives of people who are certainly not at this point behaving like morally virtuous people. Let's look at Sarai first. Genesis 16, verse 1. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. It's a problem for Sarai. Because she lives in a culture where the expectation is, and the value of a wife, and actually the value of womanhood, the prestige of womanhood, is in the bearing of children. Culturally, that's what the culture says. It's her responsibility to produce offspring. God had promised Abram that he would have descendants as many as the sand on the seashore, as many as the stars in the sky. But now 10 years have passed, and they don't even have one child. So she's getting impatient. She's feeling the weight of cultural expectation. I mean, he, she's not getting any younger. Abram's not getting any younger. She's got her husband's expectation. She has the weight of her own desire to be a mother. And in the midst of this, what happens is, as she begins to feel that weight, she begins to get frustrated. And ultimately, she's not only frustrated with the circumstances, she's frustrated with God. Because she knows it's God's will for her to have a baby, but it hasn't happened. And if it's God's will and it hasn't happened, then whose fault is it? It's God's fault. So in chapter 16, verse 2, she says to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Now, what that does, once, once a person starts to blame God, trusting God becomes very difficult. 
You see, for some people, you're looking at your circumstances and you're saying, if there's a God, I don't get why this is happening. And you're beginning to blame God for what's happening in your life. And once you go there, it's going to be very difficult to trust God. And if you're not trusting God, then what you find yourself doing is you find yourself taking matters in your own hands. And there are some of you today, and that's exactly what is starting to happen in your life. You're tired of waiting on God. Your marital problems aren't being resolved like you thought they would be. You're waiting on God. Nothing's happening. That job you thought you would get, your finances, all of that, you're hearing testimonies of what God is doing in the lives of people. You're like, it hasn't happened to me yet. You're tired of waiting on God. You're getting frustrated, and now you're starting to blame God because you're saying, if God wanted to, he could. And once you go there, it becomes very hard to trust God. Whatever your situation might be, let me just encourage you to wait on his timing because when we get ahead of God, we end up getting out of his will, and that's where Sarai is headed. Look at it, Genesis 16. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And you say, well, where did they come up with that idea? Culturally, that's the way their problem would be resolved. The wife, and this has been going on for easily a thousand years, uh, anthropologists and historians tell us that in that Oriental culture, if the wife couldn't have a child, she would find a woman who would serve as a surrogate mother, she would become pregnant, and then that baby born to the union of the surrogate and the husband would become the first wife, would become her child. Usually, they would find a slave or a servant, and that's the case here. Hagar, while well, the Bible calls her a maidservant, she, really that's a euphemism, she's a slave. And we're going to see that in a, in a moment. She has no choice in this. She's not asked if she wants to do this. She is simply thrust into that situation. And all this to say it was culturally acceptable, but it wasn't what God desired. This is where, when it comes to waiting on God, we have to be very, very careful that we don't opt for what the culture allows or what the culture does to make what we feel is, is God's will for us happen in our life. We have to believe God and trust God even when we can't see things happening, even if it means waiting for a long time. When we buy into the culture instead of following God's word, there are consequences that happen that are not good. For example, if you, if you were to go to the hospitals, the majority of births, it is certainly well past 50% of live births are out of wedlock. Now, the problem with that is the family unit is the building block of society. And when you have a family that doesn't have the stability of a mom and a dad committed to one another and to the raising of those children, there are difficulties that automatically set in. Where you say, well, how do you know they're not committed to one another? Well, they didn't even make a marriage commitment. And so it's one less thing to hold the couple together. And I'm not talking about a marriage vow as a chain. I'm talking about it as a covenant before God and a commitment to one another that God supernaturally empowers you to walk in. But when a person disregards that 
And oftentimes it's in the hope that marriage will come. Oftentimes it's in the hope that, hey, uh, we, we can live together and that's culturally accepted, certainly, but that's not God's will. God's will is not, is that people would not be engaged sexually in activity outside the bond of marriage. It doesn't work. There are consequences that are a part of that kind of decision. But when people are not willing to wait for God to bring a mate, when people desire security, when people desire a sense of belonging, when people desire whatever it is that motivates them to jump into a relationship and it's culturally acceptable instead of waiting on God, they're going to find there are consequences that make their life more difficult. And we could take that in a variety of ways. We could, we could take it to people who are in a, a gay lifestyle. Listen, if you're living in a gay lifestyle, we love you. If you're living in a situation where you've, you've switched genders, we love you. But we are here to tell you we, we don't love you well by not telling you what God says about your situation. And what God says is that he loves you and what you're doing is not the best thing for you. That's all we're saying to you. If you're a hetero couple and you're living together outside of marriage, that's not God's will for you. It's not that we hate anybody, but it's that we need to come to terms with the fact that just because something is culturally acceptable, even if in this case it's acceptable for a thousand years, it doesn't mean it's preferable with God or that it will lead to God's blessing. There is nothing in here that happens that is really preferred. God can take things and work with them as people walk with him, but Sarah is not trusting God, and Sarah is saying, listen, if I don't do this, I don't get the child, and that's the kind of reasoning people run into. If I don't do this, I won't be fulfilled. If I don't do this, I won't have somebody to spend my life with. If I don't do this, I'm not going to be able to make money in my job. If I don't do this, we have all these reasons culturally for why we make decisions, but ultimately, we have to come back and say, what does the Bible say, and trust that God's word's right. And that God will work to fulfill his will, his promise, and his goodness in our life. What happens here is that two people who are people of faith, what they do here is they decide, you know what, the culture says this, and that's what I'm going to do because it's culturally acceptable. It's just what you do, or it's what is allowed. And all of a sudden, they're not trusting in God. They're simply saying, I'm going to do what I feel is the right thing to do in this situation to get what I want, because I don't want to wait on God, and I don't want to follow God's design. There's Abram, so that's her. She's not trusting God. She's not waiting on God. Then there's Abram in chapter 16, verse 2. So she, Sarai, said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. Here's one of the things that's subtly in the text, and unless you know well the story of Abram, you won't catch this, but what happens is Abram made a decision back in chapter 13. It was a terrible decision. What happened in chapter 13 is 
And untrusting Abram goes down to Egypt. There's a famine in the land. He says, hey, I got to take care of my family. I'm going to go where there's food. You see, here's the thing. Our decisions, we can, we can come up with a good rationale for decisions that aren't God's will. Yeah. Wasn't God's will for him to go to Egypt? He went anyway. He gets there. Now, all of a sudden, he says, man, my wife is so beautiful that if they know I'm, we're married, they'll kill me and take her. So tell everybody, you're my sister. So she does that. And Sarai is praised to Pharaoh, and he takes her as his wife. So what happens is an untrusting Abram gives Sarai to an Egyptian. Now what you have in chapter 16 is an untrusting Sarai gives an Egyptian to Abram. If we sow to the flesh, Paul says, we will from the flesh reap destruction. What's the flesh? What I think, what I want, how I feel. If I make my decisions based on that, there will be consequences that create difficulty in my life that were unnecessary. On the other hand, he says, if we sow to the Spirit, we will reap eternal life. And eternal life is not a quantity of time. We're not talking about heaven, although it can apply to that. We're talking about a quality of life. Jesus said, this is eternal life that you, they might know you, the one true God, and your son whom you have sent. So eternal life. Everybody lives forever, by the way. People are going to live in heaven or they're going to live in hell. So we all got eternal life. The issue is the quality of that life. And when you and I make decisions, there are ramifications to that. And we can repent and we can say we're sorry but sometimes the decisions we make have a life long beyond. God forgives us. God takes us where we're at. God works with us. God can help us, and God can redeem things, but God can't take us back to where we originally started, if you're with me. There's some things we end up living with through the grace of God, and that's what's happening here with Abram. He's not thinking spiritually. The spiritual thing would have been to say, you know what, Sarai, listen, I'm, I'm, I know culture says this, but God's promised us a child, and honestly, Sarah, I want to wait on God, and I want to see what God wants to do, and we're not going to do this. But he's not thinking spiritually. He's thinking culturally. He's thinking carnally. He's thinking selfishly. And the proof of this is that not one time in this chapter does Abram pray. It's very, very interesting because he prays multiple times in chapter 12, multiple times in chapter 13. He prays again in chapter 14, and he prays multiple times in chapter 15. Every chapter you have him praying and talking to God, building an altar, hearing from God. But then you get to chapter 16, and there's nothing. There's no like, hey, Sarah, let me, listen, I know you want to do this, and I know that it's culturally acceptable, but I just need to hear from God on this. I, I don't, I don't feel good about this. I'm not sure this is the right way. I want to ask God what he thinks. But you see, when we don't ask God what he thinks, when we don't stop to pray, when we don't wait on God, what happens is we end up taking matters in our own hands, and we run ahead of God, and 
and we go into a state, honestly, where we risk being in a state of spiritual freefall. It's interesting, and Moses is the one who wrote the book of Genesis. So as Moses is writing this account of Abram and Sarai, it is in parallel to the fall of man in the garden. Remember Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? Sarai's action parallels Eve's action. Abram listens to his wife just like Adam listened to Eve. Sarai took Hagar and gave her to Abram just like Eve takes the apple and gives it to Adam. And in both cases, the men willingly and knowingly accepted it. So here's Abram. He's not praying. Sarah's not trusting. She's not waiting. Abram's not praying. He's not seeking God. And disaster's looming. Look at it in verse 4. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you're responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my servant in your arms. In, this is a euphemism. Really, in the original, in the Hebrew, it's the, the kindest way to put it is, I put her in your lap. And she's saying, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. On the one hand, she's blaming Abram when she's the one who came up with the idea. On the other hand, she's right because Abram should have said no. I mean, honestly, he should have acted like a godly man. What would a godly man do in a situation like that? First of all, the godly man would take responsibility even if he doesn't think he's responsible. So I don't think a guy should take responsibility if he's not responsible. Well, if you're a godly man, you do. Jesus is our pattern. Jesus took responsibility for our sin. He didn't sin. He was without sin. He took responsibility for our sin, and he did what he could to fix it. He bore our sin at great cost to himself. That's what a godly man does. Honestly, Men, in a marriage, when there's problems, whether it's your fault or not, you take responsibility and try to fix it. I mean, here's Abram. He should have taken responsibility. He should have reaffirmed his love for Sarai. He should have said, hey, listen, I want you to know what I did was wrong, and, and I should have prayed about this, and I'm reaffirming to you that I love you, that I care about you, that you're number one in my life. He should have turned to Hagar, and he should have dealt fairly with her, kindly with her, but firmly with her. But instead, watch what he does. He tells Sarai, you do whatever you want. I mean, the whole thing's a mess. I mean, it's, it's a terrible decision. Your servant is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think best. I mean, what's that? Then Sarai mistreated her. That word for mistreated is the same word that's used concerning what the Egyptians did to the Israelites when they were slaves in Egypt. What we're talking about is beater, abuser. I don't care. Do what you got to do. There's no care for Hagar. There's no sense of what's this going to do to the people involved. Listen, what you have here is you have 
Sarai not trusting God. You have Abram not praying and seeking God. And for the next 13 years, he's not building altars. He's not seeking God. And he's not hearing from God. There are some of you here today. And, and again, I'm not saying this in a condescending way. You need to understand this. I'm just saying it because I feel like the Lord wants you to consider this. Some of you, your prayer life is like in this kind of trajectory. It's just going down. You're spending less time than you used to, or maybe no time at all. And you're going to get yourself in trouble because you're not praying about little decisions, let alone the big decisions in life. And some of you are in such a hurry to get what you want, how you want it, the way you want it, that you're not willing to wait for God to go before you and to do what only he can do, which in the long run would be 10 times what you could do. Well, then we come to Hagar, and she is taking off. Sarah mistreated her, so she fled from her. She's going to Egypt. She's Egyptian. She's headed back to Egypt. She's making her way across the southern part of Israel, which is essentially desert. She, she goes, the Bible says, to Shur, so she's right on the edge of the Egyptian border. And the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert, was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. This has to be one of the most Beautiful passages in the Old Testament. Who's the angel of the Lord? It's Jesus. It's what theologians call the pre-incarnate Christ. Incarnate. The incarnation is God becoming a man. Before Jesus became 100% God in 100% flesh, he was God, very God, still is God, very God. Here he is, the angel of the Lord. He's appearing. It's a Christophany. It's Jesus appearing to Hagar. You know, you remember the woman at the well in John 4, Jesus talks to this woman who is an outcast, who nobody in society wants anything to do with her, or he talks to the woman caught in adultery in John 8, and he says, you know, uh, they're going to stone her, and he says, he who's without sin, cast the first stone, and they all leave, and he says, all right, where are your accusers? There's no one left. She said, no one. He looks at her and says, go and sin no more. This is the God of the universe coming down to a woman who is about as far down on the socioeconomic ladder as you can get. She is so, so really abused that when you read the, when you read the story, neither Abram nor Sarai ever call her by name. Do with her what you want. Here's my servant. Here's my slave. Do what you want with her. Because, you see, it's easier to be abusive to somebody if you can depersonalize them. Man, I'm just simply saying, you know, if we're looking for perfect people, then you're not going to find the, the path of faith is not populated with perfect people. The gospel isn't God helps worthy people. The gospel is God helps people who are messed up. And loves them anyway. Here's Hagar. She's, she's not looking for God. He's looking for her. And I don't know who's listening to this message today, but you may, you may feel like 
Nobody cares about me, and my life doesn't matter, and you may be even thinking about taking your life. Or you might be thinking about running away. Can I just tell you, there's a God who is looking for you and loves you. Look at it in verse 8. This is beautiful. And he said, what's his first word to her? Her name. Because nobody's called her that. She's a piece of property to them. But he says, Hagar. It's the first thing he says. It has to mean something. The God who's powerful enough to create the universe, personal enough to know her name. Where have you come from and where are you going? Does he not know the answer? Sure he knows. But he comes to her because he cares and he converses with her because he loves her. He says, where are you going? She says, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. And here's what he says, verse 9. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. You say, what in the world is that about? I mean, go back to the one who's beating you? I don't get that. Why would, why would God do that? The answer's in the next verse. Look at it. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants, they will be too numerous to count. Here's what's happening here. In her day, once a slave, always a slave. Wherever you were at socially, economically, that's where you would be all of your life. You could dream all you want, but most people didn't even have the courage to dream because life told you it will never happen. It wasn't like America. Be what you want to be. She's a slave. No one cares about her. That's her life. But that's not how God works. He's a God who changes what we are and gives us a future we could never even dream of, let alone create on our own. He's doing with her what he's doing with Abram and Sarai. He's going to turn them into a nation. And he says to her what she could never imagine would ever happen to her. He's saying, you're going to be a princess. You're going you're gonna to be the mother of a multitude of descendants. He's saying this, Hagar, go back and I will give you more than you ever dreamed you could have in this life. And honestly, when God comes to her, her life's unraveling at breakneck speed. Nothing good is going to happen if she keeps going on her current trajectory. She's a runaway slave. She's either going to get into Egypt, somebody's going to know from just short dialogue, she's a slave, she'll be enslaved again, or they're going to come after her, and when they get her, they're going to beat her or kill her. There's no future. Ultimately, she's going to run out of options. She does her own thing, but God comes to her and says, listen, I'm going to give you the freedom you want, but in a way that is way beyond what you could ever imagine. But in order to get that freedom you want and the blessing you could never imagine, you're going to have to trust me enough to obey me. Sounds a lot like salvation, huh? God's going to give us the freedom we could never imagine, 
But in order to get it, we've got to trust him, and he's going to give us a future we can never comprehend. He's saying to her, listen, it may not make sense to you, Hagar, but I've got, I've got a plan for you that is wild. It's amazing. I'm going to give you everything you could only have dreamed of and even more, but I just need you to trust me and do what I'm asking you to do. Here's what happens. Verse 11. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you're now a child and you'll have a son and you shall name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard of your misery. Ishmael means the Lord has heard. So every time she says the name Ishmael, she's saying the Lord has heard. It's a reminder every time she calls his name as a, as a little child, as a toddler, the Lord has heard. The Lord's heard. It's a reminder every single day of her life until that promise is fulfilled that the Lord knows exactly where she's at. Honestly, sometimes we just have to remind ourselves of what God wants to do in our life, right? It says this, he'll be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him and he'll live in hostility toward all of his brothers. Now, that, that doesn't really warm your heart, but... God's shooting her straight. God's saying, listen, this is, this is how he's going to roll. This is what's going to happen. And what happens is he goes on and he, as he grows up, becomes the leader of 12 tribes, 12 princes, the Bible says, underneath him, descendants of his. He is a son of Abraham and his descendants are the Arab people. And Isaac is the son of the promise, and his descendants are the Jewish people through Abraham. But God says, listen, I'm going to bless him. I'm, what does this say about the heart of God to bless people? I just, I'm going to bless him for your sake and for his sake, because God is, is he's incurably good. He wants to do good in your life. And you may not understand what he's asking you to do, but if you'll just simply trust him, he'll do more than you could ask or imagine. She hears all this, and in verse 13, she gave this name to the Lord. Here's what's interesting about this. She's the only person in the Bible, male or female, who ever gives God a name. It's a very interesting thing. She's the only one who says, this is your name. And God says, you're right. She gave the Lord this name who spoke to her. You are El Roy, the God who sees. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. You know what's interesting about this? Meeting the God who sees is so life-changing, is so powerful, that even though she is a disenfranchised, abused slave who has now been promised freedom and descendants and actually a place of royalty, God's going to elevate her like that. Even though all of that's true, none of that is what she revels in. Because better than what God 
would ever do for you is seeing the one who does it for you. Better than seeing what he'll do is seeing him. Better than watching him fulfill your wildest dream is knowing the one who fulfills it. So simply on this holiday weekend, I'm saying, are you trusting God? Or if you decided to take matters in your own hands, that's not going to work very well. Are you praying? Listen, one moment of prayer to made a massive difference in Abram's life. No prayer and a big mess. And then there's Hagar. Are you running away? Are you feeling like running away? Are you feeling like giving up? Are you feeling like no one cares? Can I just tell you, there's a God who sees you exactly where you're at. And when you can understand and realize that, your greatest thrill will never be just what he does, though that will be wonderful. Your greatest thrill will be seeing the one who sees you.